Lord, we thank you again for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for um, just the ability to worship you in spirit and in truth. And uh, thank you, Lord, for pouring your spirit out upon us this morning, for letting us experience that time with you. And uh, Lord, I pray now that we learn more about you of how to, uh, one, how to discern the truth, Lord, how to, uh, as your word says, uh, your word, it it divides between um, joint and marrow, Lord, between truth and and false. I pray that you uh, just speak to us this morning about these things, and we pray in your son's name. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 4, we'll read in the first couple of verses. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not mixing sorry, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do not do enter that rest as he has said. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all works, and again in this place they shall not enter my rest." Since, therefore, it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, for if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day." There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. As we're journeying through the book of Hebrews, we saw in the first couple of chapters that the author spoke about how Jesus is better than the angels. And he, he highlighted uh, being aware of not drifting, not falling away, or not uh, going to other things, but keeping our eyes, our focus on the Word, on Christ. But then as we dove into chapter 3 and chapter 4, the author of Hebrews, his, his focal point is that Jesus is better than Moses. And in, in many ways, you could sum up the book of Hebrews by saying Jesus is better than you fill in the blank. And right now, he's focusing on Jesus is better than Moses. And he's highlighted that how Moses had brought them to the edge of the promised land, but they didn't enter into that rest. They didn't enter into that promised land. And as he's explaining that Jesus is better than Moses, he pauses for a minute and he elaborates a little bit on that in chapter 4. He says that Jesus is better than Moses because he actually gives us rest. He gives us that promised rest. The rest that the Israelites were promised is brought through Jesus, not through Moses. 
We have to, I just want to remind us who the author is speaking to, that the author of Hebrews is speaking to Jews who were at that point in time thinking of turning from their faith in Christ and turning back to the law and the prophets. And going back to really, not that there's anything wrong with the law and prophets, but looking to them as a way of salvation, that they were looking to no longer rely solely on Jesus, but to to rely on the law and a works-based salvation. They were beginning to believe that they needed to do something more rather than resting in the fact that Jesus did it all. And so the author helps remind them as well as remind us how important it is to rest. And throughout this chapter, the author is going to use that word rest in a couple of different ways. And he's going to use it in reference to the Israelites entering the promised land. And so he will compare our rest today to how the Israelites were supposed to enter into the promised land and how that was a spiritual rest. But he will also use it in reference to creation and how God took a, a rest on the seventh day from creating, and that is also related to our rest today. And thirdly, he will look at the Sabbath, and he will say, he will compare our rest today to the Sabbath rest. And all of this, he gives all of these things so that we can learn from their mistakes, those that have gone before us, if you will. But the question at hand is, what is rest? What does it mean to rest in the Lord? The, the general term rest, and if you just Google a Webster's Dictionary or whatnot, it's, it means to cease work or to cease movement and relax, to sleep and recover. And I'm sure many of us are thinking that's what we're going to do as soon as we finish lunch. We are going to go and rest. And I, want, I even wonder, what do we do when we want to rest? Some of us binge watch the latest TV show. We go work in the garage. We have a yarn with our friend. We do different things for rest. This week, we went with some friends to uh, an indoor play uh, arena for the kids, and, and we, we, we got there, and, and the adults were all complaining at the high prices of everything and thinking, man, there's got to be a better way to corral the children while the weather is just crazy outside. And by the end of it, we had been there for almost four hours, and I realized, man, we have been resting because the kids have been entertained, and we, yes, we were still fielding mommy, daddy questions, and I'm hungry, and she pulled my hair, and all of these things. But at the end of the day, we were resting because they were corralled and contained, and for the most part, taking care of themselves. But the author of Hebrews isn't talking about our kids and us resting in that. He's talking about something much bigger and deeper. And he's even talking about something bigger than just watching the latest TV show to fill up on some me time. He's talking about biblical rest. He's talking about, and it's connected with, salvation. Biblical rest, this word is used, or just simply rest, is used 62 times throughout the New Testament. Hebrews uses this word at least 10 different times. Eight of those times is right here in chapter 4. 
So it is very significant to understand what does that word mean to the author of Hebrews. What's interesting is the Greek word means to cause to cease, to put to rest, to stop doing a task, very similar to our English definition. One commentator said, to rest in something or someone means to maintain our confidence in it or him. So to rest in something is to not just take a break from something or someone, it is to maintain our confidence in them. So the author of Hebrews is not just talking about taking a work break, he's talking about something deeper. So before we dive into the first few verses, I actually want to look at the end of this chapter. As I was struggling this week to kind of wrap my head around, because this is not an easy chapter to go through, I found it easier to understand the ending and then work my way backwards, so to speak. So if you look with me at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, he says, "'Let us come boldly before the throne of grace.'" that we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. The author in this section at this point is saying, we can't do it all. He's saying we are limited. We're not Superman or Superwoman or Supermom or Superdad. We are just Dad or mom, or husband, or wife, or whoever we might be. But notice how the author ends this chapter by saying, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. There's no if, there's no question, there's simply a time of need that is indicated. It's more of a statement of when we need help, because let's face it, we always need help. Amen? The reason for coming to the throne of grace is to obtain that mercy, to find that grace. That is where we will receive what we don't deserve, and we will receive that help. When we need help, we are to cry out to the Lord, cry out to Jesus, and He will be the one who gives us that rest. He will be the one who gives us that which we need. So from my understanding and my thought process, rest is to show us that we need Jesus. We are to rest in the fact that we have limitations, that we are not all-sufficient, all-powerful, or anything of all other than all-needy. Jesus is all-sufficient. He is all-powerful, therefore let us come to Him for whatever we need. Rest is an avenue in which we realize and come to grips with the fact that we don't have it all, but He does. So the question is, how do we rest? And I think, as I said this morning, I think worship was an amazing moment where Hopefully, many of us were able to enter into that rest. But the bigger question is, how do I have that tomorrow morning as I walk into the office? I mean, as much as we would all love for Christine and the rest of the church to come in and start worship service at the office, that's just not going to happen, right? We could try, but I don't think she'll 
come. I think she has her own work that she's got to do. But how do we find rest in the midst of a restless world? I've got a few points that we'll go through as we go work our way through this chapter. And I think if you're taking notes, great. If you're not, no worries. I found it helpful when I do take notes so that way I can go back and reflect on it throughout the week. But the first thing that I see here is that we have to recognize whose rest this is. Because as I pointed out, we all take rest differently, right? And that's good. That's healthy. Because, you know, the way my wife rests is different than the way I rest. You know, she enjoys catering for 100 people. It's stressful for me. I want to go into the garage and, and cut wood and make lots of sawdust and noise. That's restful for me. She doesn't find that restful. So it's good and right that we all rest differently, but this rest that God is speaking of and the author of Hebrews is speaking of, the rest that is spoken of here is not my rest or your rest, it's God's rest. Notice with it being God's rest, there's two implications. First, it's God's in that He owns it or distributes it, but secondly, it's God's in that He is also resting. Notice verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering His rest, right off the bat, it says it is God's rest. There's a promise of the ability to enter into God's rest, not enter into Jake's rest or Tekla's rest or Steve's rest. It's in God's rest. Look at verse 3 and verse 5. He says, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And again, in, at the end of verse 5, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. This is God speaking out of Psalm 95, and He's declaring that it is His rest. He's the protector of His rest. He only allows certain people to obtain or enter into that rest. And again, look at verse 10, at the end of verse 10, for he who has entered his rest has also himself ceased from his works. So again, this is God's rest. He, he owns it, but he also distributes it. He is the one, the gatekeeper, so to speak, of who can enter into that rest and who doesn't. But as I said, it is also his rest because he also enters into it. Notice verse 4. He says in verse 4, For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. What he's referring to is he's referring back to the creation story in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and how God created everything that we see before us in the first six days, and on the seventh day he rested. When God, when God was finished, he, took back, he stepped back and he took a break. He didn't take a break because he needed to. God wasn't lacking anything. He didn't, you know, sw take the sweat off of his brow and think, man, that was hard work. No, he took a break to give us an example of how to take a break. Also notice in verse 10, those who enter God's rest also ceased from works just as God ceased. Just as God stopped, so we are also to stop. 
So the first point is, in order to enter into rest, we have to realize that it is not about our rest, it is about God's rest, that it is His rest that we are entering into. But the question is, how do we enter into that rest? And here's the second point. Notice verse 2, he says, Let us, or end of verse 1, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it, that is, of the rest, for indeed the gospel has, was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So the author is referring back to the story of Exodus. When the Israelites were leaving Egypt and they were heading towards the promised land, I encourage you to read the chapter, Numbers chapter 13 and Numbers chapter 14. It tells of this story that the, the author of Hebrews is highlighting. And what he's doing is he's reminding us of when the 12 spies were sent into the promised land when they first left Egypt. And I, I should have remembered this story, but there's a story of how there were 10 bad spies, but then there were two good spies, and there were hand motions, but I didn't learn it. We'll have to teach the kids. But these 12 spies all saw the same thing. They all saw the land was flowing with milk and honey. They all saw that there were grapes that were massive. All 12 spies even saw that there were giants living in the land. But only 10 of the spies thought they couldn't do it. Two spies, Joshua and Caleb, believed that they could go in and conquer the land. And what the author of Hebrews has in mind is he's reminding how those 10 spies saw what the land was like and yet didn't add faith to what they saw. And so when they came back, they told the congregation, the nation of Israel, we cannot take the land. And so there was a lack of faith, a lack of trust that was preached or spoken of at that moment. Notice the author says, it did not profit them. It was not useful. So by telling the nation of Israel, yes, there's milk and honey, yes, there's, there's giants in the land, all of that information was not useful because he says, it was not mixed with faith. The word there, mix, it means to blend together, to, to literally take something and stick it in a blender. It doesn't say that in the Greek, but it mixes it all together and brings it to something, to, to blend it, if you will. And so hearing that the promised land was flowing with milk and honey didn't do them any good because they lacked faith. They lacked trust. There was a lack of faith in God's ability to go before them. Or in other words, there was an inability to trust God to lead them through their fight with the enemies. Now, I think we have to take a step back here and think, which generation of Israelites were these? Were they the first generation out of Egypt or was it the second generation? Well, it was the first generation. It was the first people who had left Egypt who had seen the ten plagues go out on Egypt. It was the first generation to see manna from heaven just show up in front of their tent doors. It was the first generation to see quail provided when they had no food or meat. 
It was the first generation who saw water come from a rock, who was also the first generation that was guided by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I say all of that because it was a generation that was not lacking miracles. There was a, it was a generation that had seen God's ability to provide and perform miracles, and yet they still lacked faith and trust. The issue for them was not visibly being able to see God perform a miracle. It boiled down to them to an element of faith and trust. They heard the Word of God, and yet they did not trust the Word of God. Faith is not something that is simply believing. There is an action, a a trusting movement that has to take place. And to me, that means that this rest, in the context of what Hebrews is talking about, is not simply just sitting on our rears watching TV, but there's an element of action. Notice he repeatedly says, enter into that rest. One commentator said this, belief in the mental acceptance of a fact is true will not bring rest to your soul. Belief in the mental acceptance that something is true will not bring rest to my soul. Acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and Savior of the Lord will not bring us rest. Trust in Him is what gives us rest to our souls. You know, I can, I can go about and acknowledge that a bridge is safe to walk on, but until I actually go and walk on it, I haven't trusted in the engineering. I haven't trusted in the, the, the ability to, of those people that have built that bridge. I was even thinking of, of the last couple of decks that me and my boss have built. And it wasn't until that I had, we had poured the concrete that I was willing to stand on the structure of it because I knew it wasn't steady. But if I was to walk away from that deck and not step on that deck and test it out, I didn't have faith in my own building. there There was no trust in my own ability to build. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to point out here is we can hear something and yet we don't actually acknowledge it. We don't trust it. One commentator says, trust brings rest. It sweeps away all the deepest causes of unrest. So, there must be an action. Faith, the author of Hebrews is speaking of a faith that is total trust. My question for us this morning as we're working through this is, does our faith cause us to live in a certain way? Does our faith cause us to move, to trust, to act in a certain way? Something that I've been pondering over quite a lot recently has been our theology should move us. Our theology should cause us to live in a certain way. Does my faith in Jesus cause me to live in a certain way? And it should be evident in the day-to-day actions and how I live. The job that I have provides me to live in a certain way so that I can serve the Lord in a certain way. The, the, the school that my kids go to is a, is a reason because it aligns with my views, my beliefs. My, my theology is dictating in how, my theology in Christ is dictating how I live. 
you know, in, in a very simple way, when it's summertime, I believe that the sun will burn me. Therefore, I put sunscreen on. Very simply put, there's things that I understand and I, I believe in, therefore I act on those things. Maybe there's something in our life that we're being tugged at or, or the Lord's tugging in our hearts to do something, but we, it doesn't, it, it's uncomfortable, it's difficult, it's not what we're wanting or used to. I believe if God can take care of my salvation, He can also take care of my life. If He could take care of and, and give me the ability to spend eternity with Him, He'll also take care of my groceries, my bills, my job. If I don't trust God to take care of me in all of these things, what am I trusting in? What am I resting in? Am I resting in my own ability to provide, or am I resting in His ability to provide for me? So the second point is we need to enter rest through faith, through an active trust in God. If faith or trust is what activates or allows us to enter into rest, naturally the question is, well, what hinders rest? Or what keeps us from being at rest? Well, again, naturally, if faith and trust allows us to enter in, disobedience or disbelief is what keeps us from rest. The word disobedience that's used several times in this chapter, it's, it's defined as the condition of being unpersuadable, an unwillingness to refuse and comply with authority. As mentioned before, Moses is leading the Israelites out of Egypt. The Israelites didn't believe Joshua and Caleb. They, they, they lacked faith and trust, and therefore they were disobedient to God in leading the way. <clears throat> Notice he says in verse 1, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. The author of Hebrews constantly is dropping little hints and, and, and cautions for the readers. Verse 1 is the subtle one of saying, let us fear. Some translations might say beware or be careful or tremble with fear. The idea is not that we will be unmovable or, or fearful to the point of being unable to move, but being driven by fear, almost in the, in the sense of, uh, of having a confidence or, or a boldness that is happening because we are afraid. He's saying the Israelites missed it because they lacked faith, they lacked trust. Let that fear that of how they missed it drive us to something else. The danger, he says, is that we will come short. That word there, come, come short, it's the idea of, of missing the goal line. Or, or, or if you were to run a race and you were not making it to the end of the finish line, that you come short of the finish line and you don't finish the race. He's saying, let us be driven by the fear of not making it to the end. The point is, is that we need to be careful, otherwise we will not rest. 
This is similar to what we, what we spoke about a couple weeks ago about drifting. And we need to pay attention when we are on the boat so that way we do not drift. So that way we are anchored and secure and steadfast. Otherwise, we will not rest. Now, I don't know about you, but thinking of that, of, it's a bit of a, something that makes me chuckle because I think of, I don't need to be reminded to rest. Uh, my body just begins to shut down and I fall asleep while I'm sitting on the couch or whatever it might be. So the idea of missing out in rest is a little bit humorous to me. I mean, even think about it today. I think the, the, the idea today is what are we going to do when we go home after this? How long is the honey-do list? Load of laundry, do the lawn if it doesn't rain, hang a picture, make something, make dinner, plan the event, talk about a certain subject. All of these things are lists that our spouses have for us to do. There is a long list of things that we have to do. But then there's the list of things that we want to do. Like I said, I'm going to try and get into the garage, make some noise and sawdust. But then there's the kids. There's the boss. He's got his own list. And not to mention the dog and the other animals. They all want something from us. We have the opportunity to miss out on rest. We have the opportunity to be pulled in so many directions because this world in and of itself is restless. So the reality is that we will easily miss an opportunity to rest in the Lord. I've even been thinking I might even feel guilty about resting. If I go and I sit down and, and I have a rest and I'm, I'm whatever it is that I might be doing to enter into His rest, all of a sudden there's a little guilt trip. I go, oh, you could have been planning that event or... Oh, you could have been doing this with the kids, or you could have been doing that for the wife, or you could have been. But at some point in time, I need to stop and say, enough is enough. I need to put it on hold. Now, in many ways, what I'm talking about is connected to salvation, but in many ways, it's also not connected, or, or it's not directly linked, if you will. Because if I can trust the Lord to take care of my salvation, He must also take care of my daily needs. If He has done all the work for me to join Him in heaven, He will also do all the work to take care of my bills, my, my life, the things that are going on. Notice what, again what He says in verse 4. For He has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. He's talking in, in verse 4 and verse 10, he's referencing that seventh day of creation, or rather the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest. And the idea is, again, not just stopping from work, but resting in the Lord. It is hearing from Him, allowing Him to minister to us, to speak to us. But what's interesting to me and what I find fascinating is that the work might not be finished, but we still have to stop. Notice there's a ceasing from work, a stopping from work, just as God stopped. If God stopped working, doesn't that mean we have to stop as well at some point? If God is truly in control of everything, 
and he took a break, shouldn't I take a break as well? Or flip it on the other side, do I think I'm better than God because I don't think I need a break? I don't need to rest? Are we better than God because we don't have to take the break or take the rest? If the Almighty God, who lacks nothing and needs nothing, rested, shouldn't we also take rest? Even if it's for the simple fact of bringing us back down to this earth and understanding that He is God and I am not, if it is for nothing other than that, that should be in of itself enough. So the third point that I would like to say today is we need to take a step back and simply stop. Simply hear from God in how to rest. If God is who He is, and if God rested, then we need to rest as well. We need to trust Him that He will take care of our needs. The job will still be there. The honey-do list will still be there. There'll be more items on it, but that's okay. They will get done. But then the question comes, what now? Because <laughs> what about tomorrow morning? We can't always be having the worship music playing in our headphones this is where the author says in verse 11, <clears throat> Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked, open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Our encouragement here is to be diligent, to hasten. To, to ex the, the word means to exert yourself with intense effort and motivation to rest. Now that seems a bit contradicting, doesn't it? I'm supposed to put a lot of effort into resting. And it is, it's something that I think the author is trying to make our, 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 our minds and our hearts aware of the fact that if we don't exert ourselves, we will miss it. We will get swept away with the busyness of this world. The author is saying, put forth the effort so that you can rest. This is something that I've been pondering about a lot lately in, in, the, in the context of, of a Sabbath. Growing up in, in the church, and particularly in, I grew up in a non-denominational church and then went to Calvary and then, you know, had a whole background of different denominations, influences. Sabbath was not something that we talked about. Sabbath wasn't something, it was something that the, the, the Hebrews did, that they did in the Old Testament. But as I'm learning, there are a lot of benefits to a Sabbath. There are a lot of benefits to taking a day and stopping, resting. Somebody even talked about how they, it, it sounds a bit odd, but how they pleasure stack to have a Sabbath, meaning that they have steak and potatoes on their Sabbath, that they, they go out with the kids and get a coffee on their Sabbath. They go out because they are resting in the Lord and enjoying the fruit of their labor, enjoying the benefits of what He has given them, and it's bringing them back down to earth and putting their eyes on the Lord. And, but that takes effort. 
Because, I, I mean, let's face it, how many of us have a day that we can just turn our phones off and not answer or, or, or not deal with the boss or, or the other things that are going on in this world? We are so caught up with whatever activity that we have, it takes energy, it takes effort to put forth and rest. The author says, put forth that effort. The reason for entering that rest is because the people in the past, the Israelites entering into the land, failed to do so. Joshua brought them to the land, but that wasn't enough. That wasn't the rest that God had for them. Again, I see this as similar to not drifting. We need to be aware, to be diligent, and be alert. The warning is to help us so that we do not become disobedient, so that we do not follow in the example, he says, of disobedience. That word there, example, it's a copy, kind of like the idea of a carbon copy. He's saying, we have an example of what it means to be disobedient. Let's not follow that example. Let's follow God's example of what it means to be obedient. Question, though, is why do we need a reminder why do we need a warning to make sure that we rest? Again, we forget. We forget because it's easy to not rest. It's easy to plan and do things that we may need to accomplish, finish the task at hand, whatever it might be. It is easy to carry on. <clears throat> I remember having a conversation with Doug a while back, and he said, it's easy to work. The context was a conversation about something else, but it stuck in my mind. It is easy to just carry on and do the tasks at hand. It's easy to just slot in and go and build or go and work at Countdown or wherever it is that we work. That is easy. But to take a step back and wait on the Lord and get our eyes focused on Him, it takes effort. Notice in verse 12, the author gives us a reason for entering into rest. It is an interesting reason, and I think it's only part of the reason. Notice he says, <clears throat> For the word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. I find this fascinating and interesting because what does that have to do with rest? What is, what is God's Word having the ability to pierce between the joints and marrow of my soul and my life have to do with me taking a rest? The reality is, is only me and God know if I've taken a rest. I don't know if you've taken a rest. You know, you come in on a Sunday morning, how are you doing? I'm doing great. When in reality, maybe I'm falling apart because I didn't sleep last night or whatever it is, only you and God know if you've taken a rest. And I think what the author of Hebrews here is saying is that the Word of God can pierce, it is dividing, it is showing, it is revealing whether or not we are taking that rest. It is powerful, sharper. It has the ability to cut between soul and spirit, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. God is the only one who will see whether we take a rest, 
whether we press pause on work or hobbies or whatever it is, and we fill up on Him. Notice he says, no one is hidden. He says in verse 13, there's no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Literally, there is nothing that can be hidden or covered or masked over between for God. He sees all. The word there, open, it's this interesting word. It can mean a couple of different things. It has the idea of, of a wrestler basically having somebody in a, in a chokehold in such a way that their opponent cannot move. It also has the idea of, of an animal being butchered. That when it's there being hung and, and split up, it, it's there. there. It's all open. It's bare. But it also has a judicial meaning. When a criminal would go into court or, or would have to hear the, their verdict being read or, or have to listen to the judge pronounce his sentence many times, not always, but many times, somebody, the, 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 um, the court official would hold a dagger underneath the, the, the criminal's throat and he would hold it in such a way that he could not hang his head in shame. He had to look the people that were accusing him or the judge that was rendering his verdict in the eye. And that's the word there for open. Everything is open before the Lord. We cannot hide whether we're resting in him or not. We cannot hide whether we are following him and trusting in him or not. We might be able to hide it from people in this room. We might be able to hide it from our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones, but we cannot hide it from him. He sees all things. But then I think this is where it ties into what the author says in verse 14. He says, Seeing then we have a high priest. Because we have a high priest who sympathizes with us, who cares for us, who loves us, who can relate to us, we have the ability to come to the throne of grace in that time of trouble, in that time when we need rest and we can't get rest from anywhere else, we should be finding it in Him. The fact that we need rest because we have those limitations, because we are limited in our capacity, because we are not super mom, super dad, super husband, super wife, or whatever it is, we are limited and that is okay because He is without limits. He doesn't have the same limitations that we can go to Him. In closing, as Christine comes up and she's gonna close us out in a couple of songs, my encouragement to us this morning is not just to rest, because it'd be easy, again, to go and watch a show, take a nap, whatever it might be, but what is it what is the rest that you need? My encouragement is to take time this week or this month to seek the Lord and ask Him, Lord, what kind of rest do I need from You? How do I enter in specifically for that rest? I mean, for all intents and purposes, when things are going difficult, we put pause on. We press pause and we take a step back and we hear from the Lord. We pray to Him. We commit those things. 
But at the end of the day, as I said earlier, our theology should dictate our life. How am I trusting the Lord in all that I do? I've trusted Him for my salvation, but have I trusted Him for my job? Have I trusted Him for the schooling of my kids? Have I trusted Him for how to raise my kids or how to, where to move next? The author of Hebrews is talking about how it should invade our lives. And I believe this is where Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5 and 7. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts, minds, through Christ Jesus. If we're trusting the Lord through our salvation, our everyday life will be taken care of. I'm sorry, I'm reminded of when we moved to New Zealand. I'll end with this and then we can worship. When we moved to New Zealand, we didn't have the funding, we didn't have the visa, we didn't have any, any of the things that immigration wanted from us. Every time they would call us and we would go down and meet with them, they would say, well, you don't have a teaching degree, you don't have the finances, and you're, you're newly married. Well, we weren't newly married, but you, you don't have it all together. What are you going to do? And I said, well, if you let us have a visa, then we will come in and we will, the Lord will provide. And that was, that was us actively resting in the fact that we didn't have it all together. We couldn't tick all of the boxes. We couldn't raise all of the money. And we said, Lord, you've got this. And I know for many of us, there's different things that we've got going on in our life, whether it be changing jobs or careers or moving house or whatever it might be, we give it to Him and we wait until He shows us the answer that we need to move forward in those things. Waiting can be the most difficult and irritating thing to do in life with the Lord, but we cannot move forward without it. Lord, we thank You for this day. Lord, I thank you for this encouragement to rest. Lord, it is, it is hard to do. It is something that you encourage us to continually be diligent in doing. And Lord, I pray that you stir in us how we are to actively rest in you. Lord, I pray that you show each and every one of us what is it that we need to do to rest in you. Lord, if there's things that we need to cut out of our lives because it's hindering us from entering in that rest, help us. Lord, if it's TV, if it's music, if it's friends, if it's whatever it is, Lord, you know the things that are keeping us from trusting in you. I pray that you stir in our hearts and our minds to continue to trust in you throughout the week. We thank you, Father. Amen.